This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Traditional media. A lot of people say it's dying. It's certainly under stress. Uh, newspapers in particular are uh, have traditionally been driven by advertising. And that revenue stream is being severely stressed. Uh, they're trying to make it up with uh, subscription fees, and there's resistance to that because we're all used to now getting things for free and instant on the Internet. Uh, uh, one of, I think, the, the, the consequences of that is the development of an alternative media which is web-based. And we have three uh, examples of that with us. Uh, uh, Rachel Lengang is uh, co-founder of Arizona Agenda, which is a a web-based news service. Brandon Quester, Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting. And Cameron Stevenson, uh, Copper Courier. Uh, I'll let you uh, tell us a little bit about those. Uh, First of all, welcome to the show, all of you. And uh, I I want I want to go across quickly with each of you and have you tell us a little bit about uh, your organization, how you're how you're how you're dealing with the issue of funding it and and what your mission is. And in the course of that may may come understand if there are differences between them, Rachel. So uh, I publish a uh, pretty much daily newsletter on Substack, which is an online platform for email newsletters. So each day. Uh, if you're a subscriber, you get our newsletter in your inbox. Most days, it's a rundown of the day's government and politics news. Um, and then we also do original reporting, you know, longer reported pieces, uh, usually on Fridays. Um, we are funded, the first year we got what's called an advanced fr- advance from Substack, kind of a misnomer because we don't have to pay it back at any point, but basically enough to cover the salaries for myself and my co-founder, Hank Stevenson. Um, and then we're trying in that first year here to build up enough paid subscriptions to cover, you know, the overhead for two people. How's it going? We are about halfway to where we need to be, and we've been around for about six, seven months, so right on track. Uh, I think because our subscriptions only need to support two people as opposed to a whole newsroom of people, uh, it actually is plausible that we could get to a sustainable point pretty quickly. Okay. Brandon, Arizona Center for Investigative Report. I've run across your stuff here and there. Tell, tell us about it. Sure. So we are the state's only nonprofit newsroom dedicated to data-driven statewide investigative reporting. Um, we are a nonprofit newsroom, so our funding model is, is largely based on individual donations from individuals from within the community that value the type of work that we do. Uh, we also have some support from foundations. Uh, Arizona Community Foundation is one example of, of a supporting donor for our shop. Um, we don't do daily news. We don't do breaking news. We focus on kind of long-term, deep-dive, um, data-driven investigative Hence investigative re- reporting. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and we were founded in 2012, um, largely to fill gaps in investigative reporting. Uh, when the contraction of media kind of began and following the Great Recession and around the Great Recession, one of the first things to go is an investigative and accountability Because it's reporting. expensive. Exactly. Because uh, you can have a daily reporter producing two reports a day, investigative stuff you could spend, you could tell me, but... Weeks. Yeah, right? weeks, weeks or months. Sometimes months. Um, absolutely. So it's it's tough. You know, we, we don't publish every day, and that's a, a challenge point for our newsroom and our sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we do publish, it tends to be larger, you know, multiple part series of stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cameron. 
Yeah, so I'm the managing editor for the Copper Courier. Uh, we're a civic media newsroom, and what that means is that we report on government and civics uh, with the intention of giving our audience enough information so that they can participate in the electoral process. Mm-hmm. So they know when elections are, who to vote for in their district, um, if there's a bill or a law that's you know making its way through legislature, they have the information from us on who to communicate, whether they support or oppose those bills. Um, and our funding model is a donation contribution model. Um, we're part of a multi-state network of newsrooms. And so our parent corporation, Good Information, they receive large-scale donations from you know big funders. Examples of the types of some of the bigger funders? Uh, yeah, like Reed Hoffman. Um, mm-hmm. He's the founder of uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and George Soros's uh, organization, they mm-hmm. also fund um, our parent company. But not you, but the parent, but the money flows from the parent to you to yes. support you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, similar to how, you know, other organizations like PBS or NPR have underwriters like Coke Industries. Um, they're supporting that organization's mission, just mm-hmm. as they support our mission, uh, but they don't influence our reporting at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do uh, have been growing a local, subs- uh, not subscriber, but a local donation base mm-hmm. of uh, contributors here who have been following our work over the years and support what we do and want to see us mm-hmm. continue. What kind of staff do you have? Uh, we have a staff of four mm-hmm. uh, full-time here, um, reporters who have worked at KTAR, Arizona Republic, um, other local stations and, and mm-hmm. outlets. Uh, we also have a videographer. Just plug, who's the KTAR alum? Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's our associate editor, Jessica Swarner. Okay. Um, she also handles all of our affordability and labor reporting. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, you know, check out her work. Um, we're, we're happy to have taken her off your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, what kind, I, I asked each of the others what kind of staff. What kind of staff do you sure. have? Currently, we're three full-time employees with a, a group of contributing reporters, and we're looking to grow that staff this year, actually. We're hoping to bring on two additional reporters this summer um, and, uh, you know, hoping to grow beyond that, of course. And, and will that be driven by donations or subscriptions or some a, combination thereof? A, a little bit of a combination. You know, primarily foundation support has been our, our our main source of income at the moment, but individual donors definitely support those. And a key, you know, point is that our donors have no say in the content that we produce. Um, they're able to support a top level uh, topical area, for example, like education mm-hmm. or health, um, but nothing specific of oh, I want you to cover this story. We don't do that. Um, and we're very. And I'm, I'm I'm seeing nodding in the room. That's just just not done. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think there are some newsrooms that have popped up across the country and the state that um, have a partisan bent and that do cover specific topic areas that um, are of interest to funders. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, by all means, a traditional newsroom in that sense. Um, what's different is our business model and, and our corporate structure as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So all altogether, just quickly, how long have you been around, Rachel? You've been first year? Is that- uh, yeah, seven months, I think, somewhere around there. And you? 2012. 2012. You're the old guy in the room. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> the veteran. Uh, yeah, Copper Courier launched in 2019. And, and before we go break, why don't, why don't we give you each an opportunity to tell us the website? If somebody wants to subscribe, where do they go, Rachel? Uh, ArizonaAgenda.com. Okay. And Brandon with AZCIR, it's AZCIR.org. And ours is coppercourier.com. We also do most of our reporting on Instagram, which is just instagram.com slash coppercourier. 
Okay. Well, we'll be back with this group in just a moment, and we're going to ask each of you to tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've, you're most proud of uh, in your recent reporting. And when we return in just a, uh, a moment in the Think Tank discussing alternative news media. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're discussing alternative media in the Valley. We have three guests, each of whom is a principal in an organization that uh, is uh, involved in uh, in, uh, alternative media. Rachel Lingang is the co-founder of Arizona Agenda. Brandon Quester is with us, the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting. And Cameron Stevenson, the copier courier. I want to go to you first, Brandon. You you, uh, label yourself the Center for Investigative Reporting. So... Tell us, uh, uh, you know, about an investigative piece of which you are particularly proud. Sure. You know, it's it's there's so many over the, the course of almost 10 years that, that we've been operating. And uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about some of our recent work. Um, just this uh, this past year, um, we focused on a, a five part series looking at how the state handles um, people with serious mental illness. Um, and, and the state itself is considered a, a gold standard nationally, uh, in large part because of Arnold v. Sarn, which was a landmark um, state mm-hmm. Supreme Court case from the 80s. Um, and here we are 40 and years. The state was under an injunction for decades on that one. Correct. Arnold, I think one of them was the director of D, uh, that's, was it Arnold? I forget who was the defendant, but. Uh-huh. Well, Chick Arnold was was the uh, public yes, fiduciary yes, at the time, yes. mm-hmm. um, and so he, you know, he was kind of the the leading driving factor behind this this uh, landmark litigation mm-hmm. and, and Supreme Court ruling. Well, it, it's been now forty years since that mm-hmm. that case initially came through, and, and one of our contributing editors, Amy Silverman, who's a longtime uh, Arizona journalist, um, she decided to look at what's happened since and what's happening now, um, and and what we explored in this five part series was really, um, despite the state being considered a gold standard, not a lot has changed in that system over time, but there are serious gaps that still exist today in the care. Um, and, and a big piece of that was the fact that the, the Arizona State Hospital is overseen by the agency that that runs it, essentially. And it's, it's a large conflict of interest. And we detailed... Uh, that being the Department of Health Service. I- exactly. Uh, and there's actually some, some impact happening now. There's some bills going through the legislature right now that could change that over to access uh, to manage them. But we found that, that the sickest of the sick, the, the po- people with very serious mental illness, are often kind of in this what we call a street-treat-repeat mentality. So mm-hmm. they, they are treated in a, in a short term. They go through the, the criminal justice system. They end up in some type of critical care um, uh, but they end up there longer than they should be. Um, that, that the types of shorter term care are meant to take place for them two to three weeks, and instead, um, patients are living there for a month, um, and then they're released onto the street without a plan, without an appropriate um, process to care for them in a meaningful way. And some of them end up in unlicensed and unregulated boarding homes. Uh, we told the story of one individual who was stuck in a, a boarding home, a large young male um, who was with two nine-year-old women, um, and that ended up resulted in in one of the ninety-two-year-old women was attacked by this young man during a, a, an, an episode. Um, so it's, it's a really serious system. Uh, it was a, a deeply reported long-term investigation that really laid the groundwork of what's happened over the past 40 years and, and why haven't things changed as they, they should have, especially in a system that's funded in, in billions of dollars at, at the, annually. 
Do you find that your stuff gets uh, gets picked up by other media? It, it does, and, and that's part of our model, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we release all of our content so any newsroom in the state can pick it up, and they can run it as long as they give credit to our staff and, and our newsroom. Um, and that's part of the, the mission as, as a nonprofit, in part, but also because we exist to help elevate the quality and the quantity of investigative reporting mm-hmm. being done in the state. Um, and a, as I mentioned earlier, our, our newsroom is trying to fill gaps in that type of reporting, so we don't typically cover uh, a topic or issues that we think other newsrooms are doing a good, good job of covering. You're you're not a you're not all the news that fits. No, no, and you know, and a core part of that is we don't want to compete with other newsrooms. You know, we want to we want to cover stuff that either another newsroom can't do on their own, or maybe we collaborate with another newsroom mm-hmm. so we can we can both com, com, you know combine our resources to do better reporting. Um, and, and it's really important. Um, you know, over the past you know I'd say six months or so, um, our newsroom is is poised, uh, some of the journalism that we've produced, I should say, is poised to lead to several law changes at the state legislature. And and that's always our end goal is impact. Uh, tell us about those. Yeah. Um, the one that I mentioned is the Arizona State Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, the leadership of that and, and how that could change. Another is we did a, a three-part series on uh, Valley Fever and how that is um, worse in Arizona than it is in any other Western state. Um, and and it I think two-thirds of all cases in the United States are, are logged here. And we know that that's also a, a very serious undercount. Um, do we know what that is? I got it. Like, I moved here, I got it. Everybody got it when you get here, <laughs> right. and then you forget about right. it. It comes from uh, mold spores that are in the soil, and, and they dry up, and they become airborne in the air, and, and you breathe them in. It's a respiratory mm-hmm. illness. But but if you get a thing called disseminated valley fever, which is the, the most severe form of the illness, it, it, it goes outside of the lungs and into the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can actually become deadly. I think it killed 39 people in the state of Arizona in 2019 mm-hmm. alone. Um, but so our series of stories explored how research and how development is funded on this. Uh, there's actually a vaccine being developed out of the University of Arizona. Uh, they just finished a, a dog vaccine. Um, and it's now led to a pretty significant uptick in funding at the state level to, to start looking into why this disease is, is impacting Arizona in such a severe and significant way. Right, let me turn to you, Rachel. Same question. A, a story or stories about which you are particularly proud? I always have a hard time with, like, I'm not a person who can even name a favorite movie, you know, like whatever I watch last. Um, but I'll tell you kind of the some of the highlights of the past, you know, seven months or so. Um, we've done uh, a really nice sort of narrative uh, investigative piece on uh, a woman who was involved in a lot of the lawsuits uh, on the 2020 election and sort of how she had changed her mind on a lot of those things. Um, you know, we've looked at um, a program that Governor Ducey had uh, started to give uh, bonuses to people who went back to work and how th- basically, you know, no one had actually gotten those bonuses. Um, last week, we had a story about a law. That was, from- if I remember it correctly, other states were using that money to increase unemployment benefits. Yes. He said, mm-hmm. well, let's incentivize people to go back to work. And then right. there was a question. They, they never. They uh, never- there were some people who got it. It was just sort of hard to qualify for. And uh-huh. uh you know, a lot of those COVID related programs require a lot of paperwork. And so they lead to these sort of log jams and the, you know, the actual benefit for people tends to be a little bit uh, out of their, you know, timeline of need. This is um, inevitably a problem because you you got public funds. You want it to be spent prudently and to only those people who qualify, which invites bureaucracy and delay. You can't be thorough and uh, quick at the same time. Yeah, I think you've seen a lot of that in the COVID 
related uh, funding for housing and things like that mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then we had one last week that looked back at five years of SB 1487, if you remember that law that allows any single lawmaker to you know file a complaint against a city or town and, and the costs that that's had on cities and um, kind of the broader picture of the chilling effect it's had on you know cities and the sorts of ordinance that their constituents may want. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Cameron. You, your chat here. Uh, yeah, so... You got two minutes. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, buckle up. Um, so, shortly after the uh, insurrection of the Capitol last year, um, our reporters, uh, mostly led by Brie Perquette, um, she did an investigation into members of the state legislature who were involved in some degree to the insurrection, you know, ranging from signing a document uh, with fake electors uh, to people... People who actually attended in Washington, D.C. Um, and we actually developed a kind of a wiki style resource um, where people can look through these legislators, um, see how they were involved. Um, and we're going to be continually be updating it throughout the legislative session and throughout the election um, to see where these people are going. Um, you know, you know, one of them, Mark Fincham, he's running for secretary of state. Um, we want people to remember that he wants to run our elections, but he doesn't accept the results of the previous election. Um, a number of them are also, you know, freshman legislators and um, other elected representatives who don't talk about the election anymore, but they were intimately involved in um, trying to change the results. And they have also been working on passing legislation to um, take power away from the voters for the coming years. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if the the narrative on that one's going to be changing. There was a, you know, recently John Shattuck, Mr. Republican, came out with a it was hired by the state Senate and basically gave the entire election a, a clean bill, bill of health. You wonder if that's going to uh, change the politics of that. Yeah, well, you know, cat's got nine lives and uh, this confusion about misconceptions about the election seems to have yeah. twice as many. Well, we will be back with our panel of alternative journalists when we return in just a moment in the think tank after the break. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're talking uh, alternative media uh, with some representatives of that. Rachel Lengang is here. She's co-founder of Arizona Agenda. Brandon Questar is with the Arizona Center for Investigative uh, Reporting. And Cameron Stevenson is with the uh, Copper Courier, right? We were in the break discussing something that I think warrants... uh, a discussion here, and that is something that probably hits you guys way more personally than it would, for example, in Rachel's former employer, the Arizona Republic, where you have uh, a whole legal department, uh, this other department, but you're a small shop, a handful of people, and most of you are in positions where if a legal liability issue comes up, you're going to be directly involved in the discussion. You're perhaps, perhaps more uh, easily threatened mm-hmm. just because of size. I mean, um, I think of, you know, somebody, well, if somebody were to threaten the republic, they're not just dealing with the republic, they're dealing with Gannett. And there's a whole and and the and a, a entity like that can absorb things in the in the furtherance of journalism because there's deep pockets there. 
Uh, I, I want to ask you each. I'll go to you, Cameron, first, because you'd, you'd talk. The subject of, well, I can get sued for this. Uh, I'm sorry. You guys are <laughs> Brandon. I'm looking at Brandon and I say Cameron. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I'm sorry. But I, but, but I, I know that you uh, meant this, Brandon. Uh, somebody's threatening. You say people threaten you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Talked about that and how that impacts your operations. Well, you know, it's 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 not a great thing to be threatened for doing journalism, mm-hmm. um, but sadly, it happens often. Um, you know, how does it impact us? I, I I have to absorb that as as an editor um, mm-hmm. and as the executive director of the organization. I try to shield my reporters the best I can from those conversations um, because I don't want them second guessing their approach to the journalism. Mm-hmm. I don't want them holding back on an approach to reporting or or making a very bold statement in a story that we've vetted and and can definitively say as fact. Um, so so it's a challenge when somebody says, hey, you know, you publish that story. I'm going to sue you, um, that that can have a chilling effect. Um, we do our best to not let it impact our reporting in any way. Well, I also made the observation during the break. I said, if, especially if you're doing investigative reporting, if nobody ever threatens you, you're probably not doing your job in that what is investigative journalism after all, if not the fact that you're uncovering something that a story that somebody doesn't want told. Exactly. And, and, and that's the very nature of, of the work that we do and, and why, you know, selfishly, we think it's so critical and so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a big part of why the funding model of our work is so important. Um, you know, as small, independent newsrooms individually, each of us, um, there, you know, we have to be varied in our approach to the revenue. So if we have a lots of different pockets of revenue coming in, we're not relying on any one donor. So if we make one donor mad, for example, in reporting that we do and they pull out. Which it seems to me you have that the capacity to, to do. Yeah. It's we, not theoretical. It has happened. It has yeah. happened. Right. And, and it hurts. You know, it's, it's never good to lose $10,000 here or, or sometimes even more mm-hmm. if, if it's that significant of a donor. Um, but that's why we diversify our revenue stream, not just through donations and foundations, but, you know, we do some service-based mm-hmm. revenue, data work for other news for example. But, um, you know, it's not just a donor coming out. It's, it's a source of a story or, or their lawyer coming after us and saying, hey, don't publish that work because we're going to come after you. Um, we're going to publish that work. You know, th- that's part of what makes investigative and accountability journalism so important mm-hmm. is um, that we, we can't back down from those threats. Um, it might not be good for us and it could hurt us in the long term uh, financially or otherwise. Um, but it's it's critical that that we stand up to that type of bullying because um, the public has a right to know it and and they can trust and know that we are going to pursue it as as appropriate as we think we need to has anybody ever given you pause with information though that makes you uh, want to take a, a another look at what you did to say we may have made a mistake here if we ever make a mistake we will be outright and we will say that we've made a mistake and, and I think that's as critical mm-hmm. you know who, who are we to hold other people accountable if we can't hold ourselves accountable mm-hmm. um, you know we've had corrections in the past where we've we've corrected a piece of information in our reporting um, and we need to do that immediately and we need to be very public about it when we do it um, I, I think it's a, it's a two-way street on accountability um, but you know it, nothing significant enough to say wow we we, we need to, like, write a, a front page uh, above the digital fold, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, you know, editors note that, hey, we, we messed up. Um, I think most people would say that, uh, in fairness, that the correction ought to get the same prominence that the original story got. It should. You know, if that's yeah, buried somewhere. Well, 
you yeah. know, if if it's a minor thing in a minor story, you. But if it if it was the equivalent of, and I, you may not have the equivalent of the equivalent of a page one, then the retraction ought to be right equally right. prominent. Well, and I think it's I think Rachel and and the agenda do a great job at this too. Is I believe in radical transparency. Um, we are radically transparent with our readers about the work that we do, about how we're funded. I list every single donor that contributes to our newsroom on our website. Um, we're not required to do that per the IRS or per per our membership in the Institute mm-hmm. for Nonprofit News, which is a, mm-hmm. a larger you know support entity. Uh, but we do because we think it's important. Um, and, and, you know, Rachel, you guys just released a report recently on, on your, your financial status and your subscribers. And, and I think that's people want to see the behind the scenes of how you're doing what you do, who's funding it and why you're doing it. Some uh, do you uh, uh, not list somebody if they want to remain? No, no. Some people want to remain not, not anonymous just out of modesty and, and, and frankly, not not wanting to be besieged by others for donations. Right, right. And, and that's a tricky one. Um, our policy is that we don't accept anonymous donations mm-hmm. um, beyond a nominal value. You know, if, and, and we haven't set a, a, an exact threshold. We deal with that conversation as it comes. Yeah, I mean, nobody cares who gave you a $30 contribution. Right, right. right. That's not going to make it's big break. enough that it could impact your operations, I think uh, a reader would want to know that. Right. And and as a member of the Institute for Nonprofit News, which is the national kind of mm-hmm. umbrella support agency mm-hmm. or organization, um, their limit is $5,000, that mm-hmm. you can't accept $5,000 or more um, anonymously. And what's your total budget, just to put that in perspective? Right now, we are right around 350000 Okay. So $5,000 would be 2% of your budget. Right. right. Okay. And I, I would say that, okay, that would seem reasonable. You're not going to change an editorial policy right. over 2% of your budget, even though you'd feel five, a $5,000 loss, it wouldn't be we catastrophic. Would. Right, right. We, we could absorb that, right. Uh, I'd ask the, uh, Cameron and Rachel to comment on this, the, the line between donations and, uh, and your uh, and editorial. What, how, do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, well, um, like I mentioned earlier, we don't do we don't um, editorial side deal directly with our uh, contributors or donors or investors. Um, you know we have an underwriting team that handles that on the national side. Um, our national organization also publishes our donors on their website so that people can see who's donating, where the money's coming from. So your structure's a little bit different in that you have a national organization of which you're a de facto subsidiary. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we have we're a, a newsroom that's part of uh, Good Information, which mm-hmm. is a public good corporation, um, and that essentially means that. The instead of a corporation being beholden to shareholders and stakeholders, they're beholden to their mission and values. Mm-hmm. And so, if those things are ever, you know, ha- at a crosshairs, we choose our mission and values regardless of what happens to any donors or contributors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. for us, I mean, the very maximum someone can give us is two hundred and fifty dollars a year, and I do not care if they leave for that <laughs> amount. Um, and most people give us eight dollars a month. And for your eight dollars a month, I'm happy to provide that service. But if you don't like it, uh, is better for you probably that you leave um so we've never felt beholden to someone's eight dollars you know it's just not that much that's That's kind of the very dispersed you know but like brandon was saying i mean having worked in politics you know political journalism for uh better part of a decade now you're always going to be threatened with a lawsuit at some point and a threat of a lawsuit to me is like you know, anybody can make it. I could say right now I'm going to sue you, like, you know, big whoop, well, unless you're actually it, going to. The first thing they 
teach kids in law school is anybody can sue anybody at any time yeah. for anything. Whether that they will prevail, whether or not it'll get thrown out of court in 15 minutes, that's a separate question. Right. And, and honestly, in most cases in media, it never really gets to the lawsuit point. It gets to the point of a threat of a lawsuit because, uh, you know, protections against media under the First Amendment are pretty strong and under case law as well. So, uh, you know, yeah, you have to show basic you have to show malice, yes. not just you. You you are permitted to make errors. Right. You're, and, you're not permitted to yeah. have actual malice and act on the For malice. For sure. Errors happen in, in every field. You know, they're, they're, you know we're all human. Um, corrections happen, and, you know, you should just be transparent and about all of those sorts of things. But, you know, uh, it's impossible to do good work without somebody getting upset about it. And, you know, ideally people don't call you names and use swear words and, you know, uh, you know, send you writing emails at 8 a.m. telling you, you know, all sorts of, you know, weird assumptions they've made about you. But that has happened increasingly, you know, over the past, you know, five or six years. That's I think become social media has contributed oh, to yeah, that, particularly absolutely. when people can do And I say social media because people can do that anonymously, that, right. that if you have to name yourself, it's you're going to give a little bit of pause. And if you have to do it in person, you're going to give even more pause than if you can send it out electronically, even if not anonymously. Yeah, I used to respond to some of those with just people who would call me names with, uh, just so you know, a human is reading these, you know. Uh, I'm a real person who reads her email, so... uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, you probably would say this differently if you had thought that through. And a lot of times people will respond and be like, I'm so sorry. Obviously, I know that, but I didn't think before I sent something. Uh, and some people double down and get worse. So you sure. don't really know where you're that, going. That's disarming for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think. Because I think, yeah, you're, 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 if somebody's angry at the media, right? And you just happen to be the one that's there. Mm-hmm. That's a little... A little different. Okay, we have a panel of journalists here. We're going to shift focus here a little bit and talk about a couple of the hot issues in Arizona politics right now when we return for a final and concluding segment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Concluding segment here, our panel of alternative uh, media journalists, uh, Let's let's change the t- instead of talking sort of introspectively about you as institutions as organization. Let's talk about some very recent news. Uh, county attorney went down in a blaze of glory. Um, blaze uh, of something. Pardon? <laughs> a blaze of something. Yeah. Well, and and it was uh, was her own party. I think that did her in. I think yeah. there was a, I think a collective decision. Uh, comment if you think I'm wrong on this. That she is a liability. Yeah, I I think um, the amount of scandals and variety of them had sort of reached a a fever pitch. And it's one thing when there are a lot of activists, you know, speaking against the office, um, because that's been a long time issue even before Adele was in office. But when you have the governor weighing in, when you have the attorney general weighing in, it's a done deal. When you have state bar investigating you and your job is to be the top prosecutor, I think at a certain point, you know, the the party uh, people are going to tell you, you know, you're not going to win the next election and your continued uh, place in this office is a liability for all of us. And and boom, it was fast. Uh, it was fast and slow at the same time. I mean, uh, it's been many months of these sorts of uh, problems that have come up. So, Well, well, the one set of issues, for example, the political prosecutions that was amply yes. documented by Channel 15, that 
was pretty significant, but you didn't see calls in Republican circles for her head. But when the thing came out, I think the final death now was the 180 cases that got dropped just out of ineptitude. Absolutely. And you can't, you know, for the party that's tough on crime, that's just unacceptable. Um, and then also the types of crimes that were, or the, the types of allegations that didn't make it into charges were not things that people are sympathetic to. It's like drunk drivers, assault charges. You know, this is the kind of the, everyday the, the, bread, of the, the bread and butter of, yeah. you know, uh, criminal prosecution. So what, basically their job. Mm-hmm. It wasn't felonies, but they were pretty serious misdemeanors. The kind of stuff that yeah, know, well, it, it wasn't parking tickets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, journalism, good journalism brought a lot of this to light. And I think it's relevant to our conversation today that that without good accountability and, and even investigative journalism happening in a community in, in a robust way that where people aren't feel for, fearful mm-hmm. of doing that type of reporting, this is what can happen. Um, you know, without good investigative journalism being done by Dave Biscamine at ABC 15 and Robert Englund at The Republic, um, you know, a lot of this wouldn't have come to light. And, yeah, a lot, and, and a lot of credit to Dave and, yeah. and, and to Channel 15 for supporting him right. in, in, a, in an environment where newsrooms are strapped. And so that was a significant investment on the part of that station to turn them loose to do that over a period of many, many months. Right. Yeah, I agree. So uh, another topic, the, the big one, uh, state taxes. Wow. I mean, it's it just head turning the amount of the they, they throw out the uh, voted people. The Prop 208, the people voted basically to surcharge upper incomes. Basically, the reasoning was that it, it bumped up. Uh, uh, education funding beyond a permissible level because there's an obscure provision uh, that was slipped into the Constitution that says you shouldn't fund education beyond a certain level. And now, what's what's happening right now? It's, it seems very much in flux what we're going to do with our tax system. Uh, I mean, the state budget, as far as I know, is really not even underway at this point. So, um, the you know the spending limit that you referred to for K twelve is alleviated. You know temporarily that's going to be a continual problem and they you know the state really needs to grapple with voters did decide that they wanted to tax more for schools um, how do you respond to the things that voters have told you that they want you know if that tax mechanism isn't the way to do it um, you know these sort of relics of these spending limits still exist for k-12 and community colleges you know how do you make a budget that actually reflects what people want. But that's not necessarily how we've been doing it here. Um, you know, and like you, I'm, I'm sure know the what we call the Battle of the Burbs, uh, you know, la- the, the past you know, few months where the state Supreme Court said the way we've been doing the budget is just straight up not correct, you know. So it, it's, it's kind of an ongoing issue, and taxes are a part of that. But to me, it's more uh, how do you respond to, you know, when, the, when one party is in control, but people at the ballot are deciding things that that party doesn't necessarily approve of. I haven't. Can you think of an instance where the people voted an initiative through that was contrary to the wishes of the legislature and the legislature reacted by saying, well, okay, that's what the people want? Well, certainly not medical marijuana. <laughs> uh, no, I mean example, please. I can't. I can't think of one. Well, we have the Voter Protection Act. So, you well, know, that it, was in response to the legislature blatantly, uh, basically, uh, you know, trying to immediately repeal something that had been voted 
by the voters, and basically the voters went back and said, no, you can't do that. Right, exactly. So they, I think the, the voters know that the legislature will do that if given the opportunity. And, so. and they're doing workarounds on it. Yeah. If you now, Right now, they basically uh, want to monkey with the tax code in a way that will invalidate petitions that have already been signed and certified by changing things just enough that uh, that, that, that doesn't go on the ballot. Because they got a pretty good idea how that's because most of the things that have been put on the ballot have been pretty popular. Yeah, I mean, by definition, a citizen's initiative has to be popular enough to or make it, it doesn't on the win. Or yeah, it doesn't or win. it doesn't make it on the ballot. And, 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 it it's, win. and, and because, in particular, the default assumption with initiatives is no. You don't have to beat an initiative fair and square. You only have to present a kernel of doubt that this might do some catastrophic thing that was unintended. Yeah. And, you know, I think the residents who have put forth the ballot propositions over the years have shown that Arizonans do want these type of policies. They want education funded. They want the minimum wage raised. They want people to be able to take paid and sick leave. Um, they don't want they want to decide whether or not we'll have a flat tax. Uh, but it keeps and all back. of these things are vehemently opposed by the legislature. Yes, exactly. That, that's a related thing, you know. Mm-hmm. If people don't feel like they're being heard or that their policies can't, you know, make it through the legislature as it stands today, it's not it, it's not cheap to put up a ballot measure. So usually there are policies that can succeed. So, you know, it costs several million dollars at this point to successfully get a ballot measure on and and pass. So unless unless you get the teachers behind it, because they have blown apart all when they put their first initiative on for the teacher pay raise, they said, oh. You know, you require two million dollars to get anything on the ballot, and they did it with fifty cents in an organization. Yeah, I mean, there still is grassroots; it does still exist. Well, and it, but it's grassroots turbocharged by social media, which was the change because to get two hundred thousand signatures, you needed. You know, four thousand activists who you got on on Facebook, and then all of a sudden the arithmetic changes and say, "Wait a minute! If you get four thousand people and they get, you know, do the arithmetic, what was it? Fifty, the average of fifty signatures. All of a sudden, that is that, yeah, yeah, fifty signatures. All of a sudden, wait a minute, that seems very doable. Yeah, yeah. They changes. got the four thousand people. Fifty signatures is a bunch of work, but not a, you know, that's a couple of weekends out there. And the other thing that was extraordinary about that was when those signatures came in, they were cleaner than anything. People would say, oh, they don't know what they're doing at all. No, come on. These are teachers. They're smart people. <laughs> the, the previous signature collectors were, were basically street people who were often hired to, to work by the signature. And a lot of them, a, a lot of them were uh, done bogus or, or incompetently. The teachers were, you know, yeah, they're they, precise people. People that that knew what they're doing and were highly motivated. They wanted the thing on the ballot. They didn't want to just collect ten bucks a signature. Right? Yeah. They went from you know paid petition circulators who get paid per page yep. to educators who are passionate about the issue. They're you know they're probably the most organized group of professionals yeah. you can imagine, um, and they're neat and have an attention. To I must say, as a as a political reform, I've always liked that one. I I think the idea of paid signatures you're just buying your way on the ballot. I'd cut the number of signatures down quite. A bit, but require that nobody get paid. In other words, a, a, an honest 
decent-sized group of citizen activists can get something on the ballot. That's the whole idea of an initiative. It was never intended to be, well, a corporation or somebody who has a seven-figure, can write a seven-figure check, can get anything. That that wasn't the intent of the Arizona Constitution from the get-go. Well, real quick, you got about 10 seconds each. Give us your website to, to, to sign up for... ArizonaAgenda.com. And with Brandon, it's azcir.org. And we're at thecoppercourier.com. Okay. Al- their alternative media in Arizona lives. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank. If you want to reach me, it's michaelneal.org, and you can use that as a vehicle to contact me via e- email or any social media. See you next week in the Think Tank.